Well, we are uh, just about two weeks out from Christmas, just under two weeks. Christmas is a, an amazing holiday. I know that there's a lot of things that we can get excited over at Christmas. I mean, after all, it's a generally festive time of year. There's Christmas decorations, there's Christmas music, there's my personal favorite Christmas cookies. Again, it's festive time. It's a cheerful time. Not only that, there are vacation days. Most of us get to spend a, a couple of days off of work at Christmas. Many of us will use those days spending time with family. Perhaps some of you will even go to your own hometowns where you'll see friends and, and reminisce about the way things used to be. And then, of course, there's Christmas morning. That used to be the day that you look forward to as a kid because you got to open presents. Of course, now it's a little bit different. As you've gotten older, now you look forward to Christmas morning, not because necessarily the, not necessarily because of the presents you'll receive, but because of the presents your kids or your grandkids will get on Christmas. You, you get to watch them rush out to the Christmas tree on Christmas morning with this kind of thrill of pure joy, and then you get to enjoy watching them open up their presents and play with their new toys. Again, Christmas is fun. It's a, it's a warm season. It's a good time of year. Perhaps it's the best time of year. There's a lot to get excited over at Christmas. And yet the most amazing thing of all with Christmas is not the presents. It's not the Christmas music or the decorations. It's not even the time we get to spend with family or friends. No, the most amazing thing about Christmas is what we celebrate at this time. And of course, this has nothing to do with Santa Claus and reindeer. It's so much better than all of that. I'm speaking, of course, about the birth of Jesus Christ. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. At Christmas, we remember how God took on human flesh and came on earth to live as a man. That's astounding. That's an astounding thought. I mean, just forget for a minute about how that could possibly happen. I mean, how could God be both a man and God at the same time? And as a baby... No less. Forget that for just a moment. The greater, the greater question is why? Why on earth would God the Son ever choose to leave the power and glory and adoration that He enjoyed in heaven so that He could put on this flesh and live here? That's a pretty astounding thought to consider that God would ever willingly choose to do that. So why would He? Of course, standing where we are in history, we know the answer to that question. We have the benefit of being able to look back on the birth of Jesus after His mission was completed and see it in its context and understand why He chose to do this. In fact, that's what makes Christmas even more amazing because standing where we are in history, we can understand that the reason why Jesus became a man was so that He could pay the penalty for our sins. God the Son departed heaven with all the the privilege and glory that He enjoyed there, and He came to earth to endure all the discomfort and indignity that we experience here. And He did this specifically so that He could suffer and die for our sins. That's astounding. If not also a bit sobering. I mean, at Christmas, we look at the baby lying in the manger with the shepherd's standing nearby in adoration with the wise men you know, gathering along in a train to bring gifts celebrating His birth. And we do so with the understanding that this child 
This little baby Jesus has come into the world to offer himself up as a sacrifice. Again, this baby, he was born so that he might die. Again, this compounds the amazement and wonder that we experience at Christmas. At Christmas, we not only celebrate that God has become a man, but we do so while realizing that He did this so that He might serve us by dying for our sins. That's astounding. And again, we understand all of this because of where we stand in history. But to those who first knew Jesus, to those who celebrated His life in ministry while He was still alive, They didn't understand all of this. They didn't necessarily put together that Jesus was God come in human flesh, at least not initially, and they most certainly didn't understand that He had come to die. There are moments where the disciples began to get a glimpse of what they were dealing with this. We saw one of those moments a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. There, Jesus asks His disciples who they think He is. And Peter responds by saying, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I mean, with that statement, we can see that the disciples were able to recognize that Jesus was the Christ, meaning they could understand that Jesus was the promised Davidic King sent by God to establish His kingdom and restore all things. They they could even understand that Jesus was uniquely God's Son. But the full import of all of that, the significance of that whole statement, as we'll see today, they still couldn't get their minds around all of it just yet. If you were to ask an Israelite in Jesus' day why God's Son would come into the world, you would have had one overwhelming answer, and that would be to conquer. That was what they believed the Old Testament said the Christ would do. He would come into the world with a blaze of glory and thunder, destroying every sinner in His path as He established His throne and ruled over the entire earth. That's what one would think that a righteous king would do. And to be fair, that's not entirely incorrect. The reason why Israel believed the Messiah would do these things was because the Old Testament said that the Messiah would do these things. You have many, many passages of Scripture, passages like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, passages like Isaiah 9 and 11, Ezekiel 37, that that speak of the Davidic king coming, judging the earth and establishing a global dominion. And yet the longer and longer that Jesus' ministry carried on, it became increasingly apparent that this was not His plan. He hadn't come to assert His authority to rule the earth. This, is, uh, perhaps, this perhaps becomes first evident when He's tempted by Satan in the wilderness. I mean, you know the story. After His baptism, Jesus is driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness where He was tempted by Satan for a period of 40 days. Or after a period of 40 days. And through the first two temptations, Satan uses Scripture in an attempt to get Jesus to unwittingly reveal some kind of sinful desire. And of course, he fails in that effort. And failing in that effort, he drops the pretense, shows Jesus the kingdoms of the earth, and he declares, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus, of course, has none of it. He responds by saying, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. So he turns down that offer. And now one could say that this is because the offer was coming from Satan, not God. And that would, that would be true. And yet at the same time, as Jesus' ministry develops, 
it also becomes increasingly apparent that this just simply isn't a part of his agenda. He doesn't intend to assert his authority and rule the earth, at least not initially. He's baptized by John. And then he, he doesn't go up to Jerusalem and set up shop. Instead, he goes back to Galilee. And he starts teaching. Now, he performs these awesome signs and wonders, to be sure, but, but some of these he even tells people not to report. When he's confronted by the religious leadership, he doesn't defend his turf. He often withdraws. I mean, by the time you get to Matthew 11, John the Baptist is absolutely dumbfounded. He's baffled. This wasn't the way things were supposed to go. Jesus was supposed to baptize the world with fire. He was supposed to destroy the wicked. And yet there John sits in jail, imprisoned at the hands of a wicked and incestuous Idumean governor. By Matthew 13, Jesus began to speak in in parables that explain that the kingdom isn't going to be this immediate affair. It's going to take place slowly. There's going to be this period of waiting that occurs before the kingdom is finally established. By Matthew 14, Jesus even stops proclaiming the kingdom entirely. Before, the message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But after John is put to death, that message stops. Far from asserting his authority, Jesus withdraws into Galilee, to, uh, sorry, rather into Gentile territory, and rather than judging these Gentiles, he extends the blessings of the kingdom to them. It's apparent that while the Old Testament depicted this strong and victorious Messiah, this Messiah that would conquer the earth, Jesus had other plans. He didn't come to conquer. Instead, as we'll see in just a moment, he came to suffer and to serve. What do we make of this? What should we take away from this aspect of Jesus' ministry? Why is it significant that Jesus did not conquer at his first coming? And how does this affect the way that you and I are to live as Christians today? Those are the questions that we're going to answer today as we see Jesus begin to explain the cross to his disciples for the very first time. The passage is Matthew 16, verses 21 to 28. If you haven't turned it in your Bibles already, please go ahead and do so. Once again, that's Matthew 16, verses 21 to 28. Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus has just said that he will build his church on Peter and the apostles. And now Matthew says this, From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. 
Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Three weeks ago we took a look at Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. And in that message I explained that we had hit a major turning point in Jesus' ministry. When Peter declares in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, it indicates to Jesus that his disciples have hit a milestone in their development and growth. As Jesus points out in verse 17, this insight, this insight about Jesus that neither the the religious leaders nor the crowds had been able to understand, it didn't come to Peter on his own. He didn't just figure it out. Rather, it was given to him by no less than God himself. God himself opened Peter's eyes to see who Jesus was. What this reveals to Jesus is that his disciples are now firmly rooted in their faith. After all, this declaration from Peter wasn't something that he had just blurted out in the heat of the moment after Jesus had performed some astounding miracle. Rather, as we saw in verses 5 to 12, it came in response to the doubt, actually, that the disciples were experiencing in the face of the Pharisees and Sadducees' opposition to Jesus. The disciples had been through the ringer. They had witnessed all the evidence for and against Jesus, and after serious deliberation, they have landed. The results were in, and they have decided Jesus is the Christ. This is a monumental moment for Jesus' disciples because it indicates to Jesus that they're all in. There's no turning back for them at this point. They have committed, and they will remain His faithful witnesses. This is why Jesus then goes on to explain that he's going to build his church on the testimony of Peter and the disciples who will also serve as the authority in this new covenant community as it's established. These men are going to be the ones that are going to survive the aftermath of Jesus' death and resurrection. And from this little remnant, from this tiny mustard seed, Jesus is going to build the church that will spread across the entire earth. And as I said when we looked at that passage a couple of weeks ago, this now signals to Jesus that it is almost time for Him to die. Up to this point, the cross wasn't quite on the horizon. It wasn't quite there yet. It was rising, it was getting there, but it wasn't quite there yet. As long as John still lived, there was a witness remaining to tell Israel to turn to the Christ. When John was killed, that signaled the end of Israel's hope for repentance. If they wouldn't listen to John, then there was no one that they would listen to. Jesus' fate was sealed at that point. He was going to be put to death. And yet, his death couldn't happen just then because the remnant that would carry on Jesus' ministry after his death by telling of the world, telling the world about him and telling them to repent and accept him as their king, that remnant hadn't yet been established. The men that would convey Jesus' teaching to his church, the, the, the cement of their faith, that had been poured, but it wasn't quite dry yet. And when Peter makes this remark, it's apparent that they have been established. The mission will continue. Jesus can die. And so in this moment, as Peter says this, Jesus' thoughts now begin to turn to the cross. And he begins to explain to his disciples something that they probably could not have accepted until this moment. He begins to explain to them why he had been delaying this whole time. Why he had not delivered John from prison. 
why he had refused to contend with the Pharisees and Sadducees, why he had spoken of the kingdom as this delayed affair. And the reason was because he wasn't planning to establish the kingdom. Instead, he was planning to suffer and die on the cross. The timing is right here. The disciples are ready for this, but you can imagine how absolutely stunned they would have been as Jesus began to tell them what was going to happen in Jerusalem and then show them how these things must happen. It's hard to know for certain what Matthew means when he says that Jesus began to, quote, show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. But the idea is that Jesus was making some kind of demonstration that this would happen. And again, not only that it would happen, but that it had to happen. I don't know what else that could mean, but that Jesus was going through the Scriptures and showing them that these not only predicted the Messiah's triumph, but also His death and resurrection as well. He probably went to places like Isaiah 53, which Matthew himself referenced a few chapters back and showed the disciples how it was necessary for the Messiah to bear Israel's griefs and their sorrows. He probably showed them how it was necessary for God to lay all of Israel's iniquities on Him. Then he probably went to places like Psalm 22, which describes the crucifixion in great detail, about a thousand years before Jesus was born. Even describing about how the Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced approximately 400 years before the first recorded crucifixions even occurred. He probably went to places like Zechariah 12, where God says that on the day of Israel's salvation, the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will mourn, quote, they will look on me, on him whom they have pierced. And then he probably went throughout the Old Testament to passages like Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34, and he showed his disciples that it was always Israel's religious leaders that, that, that led the nations astray. He would have reminded them of how Cain had killed Abel for his righteousness, of how the prophet Zechariah was stoned to death in the temple, and how the, the prophet Isaiah was allegedly sawn in two. He would have directed them to the Passover lamb and how it taught Israel that they were not any better than the rest of the nations of the earth, but how it showed them that they too needed a covering for their sin. And he would have done this in order to direct them to how it must end for him. He must go up to Jerusalem at the Passover. He must be delivered up to suffer at the hands of the nation's leaders. He must be despised and rejected by men. He must suffer greatly, have his appearance marred beyond human semblance, and become as one from whom men hide their faces. In the book of Isaiah. And then he must be crucified. He must offer himself up as God's lamb for the sins of the people. I mean, you can imagine how stunned the disciples would have been as Jesus began to explain all this. Here they are basking in the afterglow of Peter's declaration. And not only of Peter's declaration, but of Jesus' affirmation of Peter's belief. Jesus has just said for the very first time, He has just explicitly revealed Himself as God's Messiah. He didn't imply it. He didn't hint at it. Peter said, you're the Christ. And Jesus essentially said, you're right. I am. 
And just as their minds are beginning to race, and they become intoxicated by the prospects of what that means for them as His disciples, Jesus begins talking about His suffering and His death. He's going into great detail about how He's going to be rejected and experience His horrendous death on the cross. I mean, they're probably so shocked by all of this that by the time he gets to the end and begins to explain from passages like Psalm 16 and the end of Isaiah 53, that after he has died, he will be raised again to everlasting life and dominion. By the time he gets to that point, they're tuned out. They don't even hear it. Jesus is talking about his triumph from the grave, but they're still back at the cross thinking, What did he just say? What's he talking about? So maybe Jesus is explaining all of this in one sitting, and they're just standing there in this kind of stunned silence as he goes on and on about his death and resurrection. Maybe he did this over an extended period of time. We don't know. After all, uh, Matthew says that it was from that time that Jesus began to show his disciples these things, which implies some kind of extended period of time. Uh, That certainly appears to refer to this idea that that Jesus began introducing this idea at this point and continued to talk about it uh, moving forward in his ministry, but it may also imply that Jesus spread out this initial revelation of his death and resurrection over an extended period of time. Like maybe he spent some time one day going back to the Old Testament and showing his disciples how Israel's religious leaders were a constant stumbling block to the nation. Then maybe the next day, Jesus goes on to show them how the Old Testament predicted the Messiah's suffering. And then he lets that idea marinate for a while before going on to speak of how it also spoke of his death. Who knows? Maybe he said all this in one sitting. Maybe he does this over an extended period of time. We can't really say for sure, but regardless, you can see how the disciples would have become increasingly dumbfounded as Jesus progressed further and further into his teaching. This just wasn't the sort of thing that was ever expected of the Messiah. I mean, doesn't Jesus understand that's not what the Christ does? The Christ conquers. The Christ rules. He's supposed to be the king. And we, his princes, why does he keep talking about suffering and death for? Peter eventually has enough. In verse 22, he pulls Jesus aside and he begins to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter has apparently been emboldened by Jesus' praise in the previous passage. Jesus has declared Peter to be an especially astute student, and it would seem that Peter has somehow interpreted that to mean that he's Jesus' peer, because he takes Jesus aside and he begins to correct him. I mean, do you, you understand how absolutely crazy this is? Peter treats Jesus like Jesus is embarrassing himself. He's listening to Jesus explain to all this, and he doesn't ask Jesus any question. He, he just pulls him into private. Like he kind of walks Jesus off a few paces from the disciples, and he's talking to Jesus while their backs are turned in order to shield the conversation from them. He's trying to keep from publicly embarrassing Jesus with what he's about to say to him. And he begins to rebuke him. Do you understand? Peter's just getting started. He has this whole speech prepared. Jesus is is presenting all this evidence that explains he must go to Jerusalem in order to suffer and die at the hands of the religious leaders. And Peter is thinking, man, 
This is embarrassing. Jesus is really messing up here. He really doesn't understand even the basics of what the Old Testament said about the Christ. And so he pulls Jesus aside privately and begins to rebuke him. Again, he's correcting Jesus. Like he intends to school Jesus on what's supposed to happen to him. So Peter starts his grand speech by telling Jesus, No, Lord, you don't understand. You know, that's not what happens. You see, and then he doesn't get more than two sentences into that before Jesus then pulls away from Peter and says, No, you listen. You're the one who doesn't understand it. Matthew says that Jesus turned to Peter. So, so Peter is pulling Jesus aside to correct him privately. Jesus squares off in front of him so that all the disciples can see and hear what he's about to say back. And what he says is about the strongest rebuke that he could possibly issue. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Wow. Here's, here's blessed Simon Barjona. The one who Jesus just said was especially loved by his father, as demonstrated by the fact that he could recognize who Jesus was. And now, Jesus is calling him Satan. In fact, there's even a little more than that going on here. That word for hindrance in the Greek is the word scandalon, and it was sometimes used with the word petra, rock, to speak of a stumbling block. That's the basic idea here. In one breath, Jesus is saying to Simon, you are rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. Peter is this glorious foundation stone for the church. But then in the very next breath, he has become a stumbling block that is getting in the way of Jesus' mission. Do you think that maybe brought Peter back down to earth a little bit? This is absolutely devastating. As Jesus hears this response from Peter, where Peter tries to tell Jesus of the glories that that are awaiting him instead of the suffering that he must endure. Do you know what Jesus hears? He hears temptation. He hears of an offer of glory apart from suffering. In other words, he hears the very same words that he heard back in the wilderness from the mouth of Satan. Here is Peter telling him that he isn't destined for the cross. He can have glory without all of that. And Jesus Jesus identifies this as no less than satanic temptation. And this is not to say that Peter is being possessed or or influenced by Satan or anything of that sort here, but he is unwittingly acting as an agent of Satan in this moment, trying to offer Jesus the very same thing that Satan had offered him back in chapter 4. Jesus identifies this temptation accordingly, and he cuts it off immediately with the words that echo those of Matthew 4. There, you will recall, he said, Be gone, Satan. Here he says, Get behind me, Satan. And the only difference is that there's not a full rejection of Peter in this instance. To to tell Peter, get behind me, in light of what follows, this is in order for Peter to get back in his place as a disciple and follow Jesus instead of trying to direct him on what he should do. In other words, this temptation comes up, and before the words can even come out of Peter's mouth, Jesus very sternly says, not another word of that. Now, get back in your place. You're the one that's misguided here, not me. You're the one that's deceived, not me. And how is Peter misguided here? Jesus explains at the end of verse 23. He says, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, 
but on the things of man. This is a very telling comment. In fact, this is the hinge of the entire passage. If you look in verse 24, Jesus begins to address the rest of the disciples who presumably shared Peter's sentiment. And this last bit of verse 23 is the basis of that address. Why is it that Peter could not accept what Jesus was saying? Was it because what Jesus was saying wasn't scriptural? Absolutely not. What Jesus was saying was very scriptural. There was a mountain of evidence in the Old Testament that pointed to the suffering of the Messiah. The problem, however, was that Peter was not concerned about the things that matter to God. He was concerned about the things that matter to man. He was thinking earthly thoughts, not heavenly ones. In other words, his thoughts were not lifted high enough. They weren't expanded far enough. His eyes were only looking at what was right there in front of him and not at what stretched out before him off into the distance. This means that what mattered to Peter was earthly riches and glory. And so when Jesus speaks, begins to speak of his suffering and death, it didn't compute. It didn't make any sense to him. Just as the Pharisees couldn't accept Jesus because he didn't fit into their preconceived notions of righteousness, so also Peter had trouble accepting this aspect of Jesus' ministry because it didn't fit into his own assumptions of of worth and reward. The Old Testament revelation concerning Jesus' suffering was there, but Peter was looking right past it because it didn't fit his expectations. What he wanted from the Christ was different than what God wanted. He wanted temporal riches and glory. He wanted to be exalted and made much of by men. But God was concerned with sin's eternal consequences, and He wanted to glorify His own name. If Peter had understood that, then he would have realized that the Christ couldn't enter His kingdom without suffering. After all, while God wanted to set apart a people to worship Him, that couldn't happen without sin being dealt with first. Since everyone was sold into the bondage of sin, His name couldn't be exalted without His Spirit being poured out on His people. And that couldn't happen without sin being forgiven and cleansed from His people. That required death. The penalty for sin is death. And so for His people to be forgiven in such a way that they could be completely restored and sanctified, the Messiah had to die. There had to be a sacrifice. The Messiah had to offer Himself as a substitute for His people. Before Israel could experience the blessings of the new covenant, they first had to pay the penalty of breaking the old covenant. That required the death of their king, their head. Only then could the fullness of God's riches be poured out and His name be glorified. If God's kingdom was established before sins were paid for, then Israel could only expect judgment at Messiah's coming, not blessing. So the only way that God's name could be glorified on the tongues of men forever and ever, the only way that He could establish His kingdom in such a way that it was a blessing for His people and not a curse, was if their sin was dealt with first through the suffering and death of the Christ. Peter wasn't thinking this way. He wasn't thinking about redemption from God's perspective according to what mattered to him. He wasn't thinking about how God's name could be glorified through the manifestation of His grace. And so he had trouble accepting this part of Jesus' instruction as did the rest of the disciples. And so considering 
that Peter is the most advanced of his apostles, and therefore understanding that this was an issue not only for Peter, but for all of them as well. Jesus turns to them in verse 24. He reinforces his point by telling them that in fact it wasn't only him that would suffer and die, but many of them as well. He says in verse 24, If anyone would come after him, me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And just to be clear in context, that's not a figurative cross that Jesus is talking about. Jesus talks of his own suffering and death before turning to his disciples and then talking about theirs. His wasn't a figurative suffering and death, so it stands the reason that theirs is not either. In the Roman world, it was common for the condemned criminal to carry his own cross to the place of execution. So they, again, they carried their cross on the way to, to suffer and die. What Jesus is saying, as he starts to take up the cross here at Caesarea Philippi and begin his journey to his own execution, what he's saying is that if his disciples want to follow him, they had better get in line. They need to make that decision to suffer that fate as well. That's actually how this is phrased in the Greek, by the way, as a kind of one-time taking up of the cross with a continual journey to follow. His disciples need to accept that they will suffer a similar fate as him and, and resolutely set their mind to that task as he himself is doing at this point in his ministry. This obviously requires a measure of self-denial. The disciples are going to lose something in following Jesus. Chiefly, they are going to lose the short-term rewards that Peter was envisioning when he attempted to correct Jesus. There are no riches in glory in death. And yet there is a greater reward to follow. And what's notable here is that as Jesus emphasizes this short-term suffering to his disciples, he does so while still emphasizing the long-term reward. He lifts their eyes up. He takes them off of earthly things and puts them on to heavenly things. If you notice here, there are these three consecutive four statements in this passage. You have one starting at the beginning of verse 25. There's another at the beginning of verse 26. And then a third starting at the beginning of verse 27. All of these statements explain why Jesus' disciples should make this choice to take up their cross and follow Him. And then with each four statement, Jesus digs down deeper and then he explains the one that came before it. So the heart of this explanation really comes in verse 27. Where Jesus says that the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father and repay each person according to what he has done. That's a, that's a theologically pregnant statement. There's way more of that statement than I could get into today. I'm actually going to dig a little deeper into it by exploring the meaning of this phrase, Son of Man, Next week, there's a lot going on here. But suffice to say for right now, the point is that although Jesus is going to die, he's pointing out that he's not going to remain dead. This is where he really hammers home on the resurrection point of his explanation. Yes, he's going to die, but he's also going to be reigned with power after he has been raised. And when he comes with power, he's going to repay each person according to what they've done. That's a, that's a theological basis for why his disciples should take up their cross and follow him. They should do it because he will one day return with power to judge the earth. And he's about to receive this power very soon, by the way. Jesus says that there will be some present who will still be alive when they see him in this power. 
that appears to be a reference to his post-resurrection appearances, which are actually less than a year away at this point. This is going to be a very short-lived kind of suffering on the Messiah's part. The power and authority that is expected of the Christ, Jesus will have it very soon. And they will witness it. He's not just asking them to take it on faith. They'll soon witness Jesus' authority to judge the earth firsthand. Now, if we want to know what is significant about this judgment, then we look up into the verses that dig down to this theological core, which are verses 25 and 26, where Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So if you're paying attention, this judgment that occurs in verse 27... It isn't what's called the Bema Seat Judgment. This isn't about the rewards that believers will receive for their faithfulness to Christ. This is about heaven and hell. This is about eternal life and eternal death. In other words, a person's salvation is dependent upon whether or not they take up their cross and follow Jesus. And so with that in mind, Jesus says, the one who would save his life, and the word for life here, suke, can apply either physical or spiritual life. And Jesus plays on the double meaning of that word to say whoever would save his life, and the sense there is like their physical life, he says they will lose it. Referring to their spiritual life. And then he says, but whoever loses his life for my sake, and again, that's the physical life, will find it spiritual. Jesus says the one who tries to save their life By denying Jesus, they're going to lose eternal life in the process. But conversely, the one who loses his life, earthly life, with Jesus, on account of Jesus, he will gain eternal life in the process. So that's the expectation. Jesus expects all of his disciples to die with him, and if they're not going to die with him, then he says they will not live with him either. As he says in Matthew 10, uh, 32-33, everyone who acknowledges him before men, he'll acknowledge before his Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies him before men, he'll deny before his Father in heaven. Jesus is going to render judgment according to this standard when he returns. Those who are his will suffer and die with him. Jesus then uses this concept and he reasons with his disciples in verse 26, saying, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Again, the word for soul in each instance is this word suke. Jesus wants his disciples to count the cost. And he says, So let's reason together then for a moment. Which is more important? Is it the short-term gain and long-term loss? that is experienced in denying me? Or is it the short-term loss and long-term gain that is found in following me? I mean, go to the extreme. Suppose that Satan offered you all the kingdoms of the earth so that you could rule over the entire earth. It could all be yours. Would it really be worth it if at the end of the age the Son of Man comes back to rip it out of your hands and cast you into eternal torment in hell. Would it be worth it to gain absolutely everything in the world if it came at the cost of your own soul? Of course it wouldn't be worth it. Right? 
And Jesus uses this point to drive home to his disciples. It's not only going to be me that's going to suffer, but you as well. And so you had better set your mind on eternal things, because that's what I'm offering. And if you don't do that, if you have your heart set on earthly things, then you're going to lose it all in the end. This is just an incredibly strong warning to the disciples that they had better set their mind on heavenly things rather than earthly things. And if you want to understand what Jesus is doing here, you're going to look back at verse 23. I want you to understand why Jesus is issuing this warning. He's not just making a demand of them. He's not just informing them of His expectations. He's addressing their heart, actually. In a way, He's teaching them. Understand, the reason why Peter could not understand what Jesus was saying, it wasn't because he lacked the mental capacity to do so. It was because he lacked the spiritual capacity to do so. It wasn't Peter's head that was the problem, it was his heart. He had his mind set on the things of men, and so because of this, he couldn't accept what Jesus was saying. It was, it was too hard for him. And so he tried to make Jesus conform to his own expectations for the Christ. So what Jesus is doing here is he's attacking that heart issue. By turning to his disciples and telling them, you're going to suffer with me, you're going to suffer with me or experience my wrath, he essentially rips the band-aid off. He takes the obstacle that is preventing them from understanding what he has been sent to do. He takes that obstacle out of the way. He tells them, you're not getting earthly reward. Do you understand? Following me means self-denial right now. It means payment in heaven. And by doing this, he directs their attention to eternal matters. He directs their attention to eternal matters so that they can begin to view his ministry from God's perspective rather than their own. Do you understand what I'm saying here? Jesus is equipping them to receive his instruction about his suffering by attacking the idols that are standing in the way of that. Verses 24 to 28 were delivered, not only for Jesus to clarify his expectations for his disciples, but also to shape their hearts so that they can begin to accept and understand why he must go up to Jerusalem to suffer, die, and be raised again. So if we're to understand what we should take away from this passage, it's this. Take your mind off of earthly things and put them onto heavenly things. Take your mind off of earthly things and put it on heavenly things, not only so that you'll be willing to submit to God's plan for you. And this is necessary to submit to God's plans. If you live out your life in Christ, there will be self-denial. There will be delayed gratification. And the only way you're going to have the strength to endure this is if you're setting your mind on the things of God rather than the things of man. So take your mind off of earthly things and put them on heavenly things so that you'll be willing to submit to God's plans. But not only this. Also take your mind off of the earthly and put it on the heavenly so that you can understand God's plans for you. So that you can understand God's plans for you. 
The church is so very often confused with wrong priorities. And if you want to know why, so much of it comes down to this right here. Their vision, their vision is too narrow. They're coming at Christ from the wrong perspective. And so because they do that, they see Him, we see Him often, as something other than what He is. Or they perhaps even attempt to shape Him into the form of their idol. They take their preconceived notions of what they think Jesus should be. And then they put those expectations on Jesus rather than allow Him to reveal who He is to them. You see this happen in a couple of different ways. If I could put it this way, when we we speak of the will of God, we can speak of it kind of two different ways. There is His revealed will. This refers to those desires that He has plainly revealed to us in Scripture. God's commands, for instance, are an example of His revealed will. God has plainly said that he does not like murder, he does not like theft. Those are things that he does not want to see happen. That's one aspect of God's will. Then there is his secret will. That refers to things which God works out through divine providence without necessarily revealing his intent. So like if you were to get in a car accident on your way home, was that truly an accident? From a human perspective, yes, we didn't intend that. And yet, according to the Scripture, it was not an accident from the divine perspective. God willed that to happen. Now, that discussion can get pretty confusing when you start considering how it is that God, for instance, can will someone's death when the Scripture reveals that death is a consequence of sin at the fall. Now, I'm not going to try to untangle that knot today. My only purpose here is to point out that there is both God's revealed will and His secret will, and our understanding of both of these things are shaped by whether or not we look at them from a divine perspective. So, for instance, when you see churches begin to drift in their presentation of the gospel, when they start to make the gospel about social issues, or when they try to focus on a kind of, you know, your best life now mentality, a a God is life coach mentality, or when they gradually turn into a kind of social club that's unconcerned with the Great Commission, That happens because members of the church, whether it be the leadership or the lay people, they've stopped thinking about things from a divine perspective. And I say that because if you're looking at things from a divine perspective, then the proclamation of the cross becomes the heart of our mission as Christians. Like when we start asking ourselves, what is God like? And what does He care about? And what does He, how does He look at things? What we see is that God is holy that He is righteous, and that He cares about the glory of His name. We see that He is eternal, that He will bring all men into judgment where their eternal fate will be decided by their relationship to Christ. In other words, we understand that the mission that Jesus is describing here in this passage is not over. Yes, sins have been paid for at the cross, but Jesus has not come back with power yet. And since He has not come back with power, sin still reigns on this earth. It must be answered first. And before He returns, this means proclaiming the gospel. You and I cannot usher in the kingdom of heaven, and so our mission is to grow that kingdom until the return of Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. We continue to proclaim the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ, which He speaks about here so that sinners can continue to see their sins placed on Him. 
That's what matters. I mean, don't get me wrong, feeding people is nice. And I understand that we can't say we truly love other people when we're, when we're unconcerned about their physical needs. Uh, I understand that a person who is hungry will probably listen to your message more intently once they're fed. They'll probably believe you more when you say that the gospel is about God's grace when you care about their physical condition. But at the same time, what matters really is not whether or not they're fed. You can give someone food and sustain their life for a little while, but in the end, we all still die. And so what matters, what truly matters, is not whether or not we can give someone temporal life, but whether or not we can give them eternal life. And that comes to the proclamation of the gospel. So a church isn't going to make their mission about social issues if they're thinking about things from a divine perspective. They're going to make it about the gospel. The same logic applies to the best life now approach. If you think the most important thing in life is how much money you make or whether or not you practice wholesome family values, then it makes sense to see Jesus as kind of a life guru. The one who will show you the keys to unlocking personal happiness and success. But if you understand that what matters is having a restored relationship with God, that sin is the problem in your life and in your community, that the great tragedy of this planet is not our lack of personal comfort, but that God is not honored as God, then it's easier to understand that Jesus is a Savior, not a life coach. And that following in His footsteps may mean sacrifice and discomfort, not personal fulfillment. And we could go on with countless countless other examples. Sometimes this even works itself out in some really bizarre ways where there's a concern for the Great Commission, but in a way that compromises the glory of God. Like sometimes Christians will begin to, to compromise God's commands. They will not uphold God's clearly revealed standards for righteousness. And they'll do so thinking that this will help them become more, you know, quote unquote, relevant to the culture which will in turn help advance Christ's mission. And this too comes from a failure to see even salvation from God's perspective. We can very subtly shift the purpose of grace from being something that God does to glorify Himself to being something that's about us. We can make the purpose of grace not about God's greatness and worth, but about ours. In other words, we make it so that our salvation is the end. And because of that, we adjust the means to fit that end. That's not looking at the gospel from a divine perspective. Again, don't get me wrong. God wishes to save us, but He wishes to save us as a manifestation of His grace in order to bring praise and honor to Himself. The gospel is really about His glory. That's what matters from a divine perspective. And that's right. This is what matters. Well, if that's what matters, then the way we think about reaching the world revolves around the glory of God. And that shows us that we cannot compromise His righteousness for the advancement of the kingdom. In fact, to do so is to undermine the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel is worship. It is to bring sinners back into a relationship of worship before God. That means, Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded us. 
This is one way a failure to see things from a divine perspective causes us to misunderstand Jesus. It leads us to put our preconceived notions of Him onto His revealed will for us, which in turn changes the way we see Jesus Himself. And I just have to say, this has had a devastating effect on the church. The church today is largely asleep. We are not effective in our mission. And it is because we are not looking at things from a divine perspective. We don't go to God's Word to be shaped by it. Instead, very often, we read our own desires into it. And the result is that much of the church at large is completely unconcerned with spiritual things. And many of us who are still fail to represent God's Word accurately. You know, you have people who are very active on on mission, but because they will not humble themselves to listen and be instructed by His Word, they end up presenting their idolatrous version of Jesus to the world instead of the true Jesus. And that doesn't advance the kingdom of heaven. It actually tears it down. So there really needs to be repentance on this issue. We must allow divine perspective to shape our understanding of Jesus' revealed will. And we also need to let it shape our understanding of His secret will as well. Now, I want to be clear here. Jesus is most definitely talking about God's will for salvation in these verses. This passage is squarely about the importance and centrality of the cross in God's plan. It's not about your day-to-day struggles in life. But at the same time, the principle on display here, that, that Peter's unwillingness to see the Christ from a divine perspective hindered his ability to understand God's purposes for Jesus, that principle extends out into other areas of our Christian walk as well. And what I mean is that because Peter failed to look at the Christ from a divine perspective, he failed to understand that suffering actually is sometimes a part of God's plan. Suffering isn't contrary to God's purposes. It's often actually instrumental in God's purposes. That's actually what Jesus reveals to His disciples in verses 24 to 28. He tells them that God's will for them on this mission is not that they would experience riches and power and glory, but that they would suffer. God meant for them to suffer. Now that's not His revealed will for us per se, but what we will discover in the course of our mission is that is often His secret will for us. He wants us to be perfected through sufferings. Often we miss this point because we're only looking at things according to a strictly human perspective. We fail to understand how suffering benefits us. And we fail to do this, number one, because we're only looking at the short-term effects of suffering and not the long-term benefits. And then number two, we want the temporal benefits that come with prosperity rather than the spiritual benefits that come through suffering. We're looking at things according to our limited and earthly perspective instead of according to God's divine perspective. And so suffering comes into our life, and then we complain, and we think to ourselves, God, why have you forsaken me? And this is foolishness. He's not forsaken us. Just because we're suffering, suffering is a part of the plan. It's part of His gift to us. We often just can't see it because we're so short-sighted. We have this very earthly perspective on on what we call quote-unquote good. And then we put that on God, thinking that if He is good, then He'll do that. 
He'll meet my expectations for my life. And then when He does it, we're disappointed. And we act like God hasn't shown up. Like He hasn't kept His word. This is the danger of not seeing things from a divine perspective. When you fail to look at life from God's side of things, it will cause you to misinterpret God's purposes in His secret will. And this in turn causes you to question the character of God. It can perhaps even lead you to question your faith. But when you do see things from a divine perspective, it's completely different. Then even when hardship strikes, say you lose a loved one in a car accident or or you receive a cancer diagnosis, or you're suddenly laid off from work, or you're unexpectedly slandered by a close friend, even then you can take comfort in the fact that Romans 8.28, for those who love God, all things work together for good. And this is where the joy and peace and contentment that we look for really comes from. You can look at your life, even in the suffering, even when you're not getting all the things you think you want. And you can say to yourself, this too was designed for my good and His glory. Are you starting to see my point here? If you're going to understand God's purposes, from salvation to sanctification, then you have to stop putting your expectations on Him. And instead allow Him to reveal His purposes to you. So that being said, here's your homework. I want you to think of of one aspect of God's revealed will. And then I want you to think of one aspect of His secret will that you find troubling. So like take a command, maybe some action that God performs in the Scripture that you have a hard time accepting. And then try to look at it from God's perspective. Meaning, look at it according to His character as it's revealed in Scripture. Perhaps even look at it from the perspective of eternity and ask yourself, why would God want it this way? Why why does He make that command? Why did He do that thing? And then I want you to do the same thing with some aspect of your life that you have a hard time accepting some aspect of His secret will in your life. Ask yourself, what divine purpose could this disappointment or that regret or that trial fulfill? And see if that doesn't start to answer some questions that have been eating at you for a while. In the meantime, there are some questions printed in your bulletin. I invite you to look those over and then come back at 6 o'clock to discuss those with us. Let's close with prayer. Let's pray.